Hi, I'm Jeffrey. And I'm Maya. Welcome to this week's edition of The Buddy Mix. Another week, another cancellation. We're breaking down the Harper's Magazine letter published earlier this week. And we also talked about hashtag Goya Away and what it looks like to boycott companies we may be fans of, but have political convictions that are out of step with our own. We'll also be discussing the Netflix show Dating Around and how we've been navigating our love lives during quarantine. Ooh, child. And as always, some more songs for your playlist. This is the buddy mix. Jeffrey, how's your week been? Um, what's been on your mind these days? My week's been pretty good. I'm back at home in my mom's apartment, the apartment that I grew up in. So it's it's been interesting being back home after so long and like post-COVID, being back in New York, definitely very bizarre. Um, so that's that's one thing that's in my mind. But the other thing I would say uh, as of yesterday that's been like really um, just I keep checking my phone every like hour has been, you know, Naya Rivera's disappearance. And I want to take some time this episode to just talk about how we're feeling because I know that you watched Glee also when you were younger and are a big fan. When I was a swimmer, I used to like race home just in time to watch Glee. And I mean, looking back, it's obviously a really cringy show but um, (laughs) I mean like Santana was and still is probably one of my favorite characters and like one of the characters that I think still like holds up and has stood the test of time in a way that a lot of other characters kind of have it um and you know I think she was really great for for representation and I've seen in in wake of her disappearance and at the time that we're recording this she still hasn't been found yet so we don't know what the result is going to be when we do eventually publish the show but in in light of her disappearance I've seen a lot of people you know talking about how important having that representation was for them so I know it's been a really big struggle for a lot of fans. I think we had this conversation um a while ago I didn't get into Glee when I was around um, I, I wish I had just so that I could like have enjoyed it when it was in its prime. But I, I've come across a lot of those messages too. Um, you know, she was a very pivotal figure, especially like on a teen drama. I think very rarely at that time, because Glee came out in 2009, did we really see a lot of characters, especially um, POC characters and women who had that representation within the LGBTQ community. So. She definitely was a trailblazer in that regard. We just wanted to to take the time and just say thank you for everything. We're hoping for the best. Yeah. And obviously, you know, thoughts and well wishes to their family and to her family and her friends. This week, Twitter has been ablaze with a lot of people, places, things that have been getting canceled. And there's a lot of people who've had a thing or two to say about that. So one of the things that I did want to talk about was that letter that was published in Harper's Magazine this past week. So for those who don't know, it was this letter that like 100 plus well-known authors, journalists, and academics signed on to. And it was published in Harper's, which is like this prestigious literary magazine. Um, And it's also been a publication that's been in the news for being anti-union, not paying its interns, and firing editors over disagreements with the publisher. So there's some tea there, but basically the main thesis statement of this letter was that 
open debate is becoming more constricted in our society. And there are these, you know, illustrious <laughs> writers who have big careers and even bigger bank accounts who live in fear of being silenced because cancel culture is supposedly coming for them all. And to demonstrate that, they published this letter in a super prestigious magazine, read and known by so many people. So <laughs> what are your thoughts? So funny enough, like, I didn't hear about the letter until you brought it up to me. I, I think me, I've been like running so many errands for my mom and like I've been off my phone. So I've missed a lot of that. Um, I like did some research on what was happening, read the letter. And I mean, first of all, knowing that background too about like Harper's being very anti-union and constantly supporting causes that are um, more conservative. I'm like, if who like the, the people who came together to write this letter really were well-intentioned and wanted to like get their message across, maybe they should have thought about <laughs> the the avenue they were using and maybe tried to pick something that was didn't have such a bad history already. But maybe, who knows, maybe it's because other publications that maybe are more progressive and liberal probably wouldn't have picked it up in the first place. That probably could be why that was the only option for them. But I mean, yeah, I read the letter and I mean, sure, there are like little nuggets of things in there that I was like, okay, sure. Like, you know, I think I've, I've had reservations about like certain instances in which you've canceled people um, or even like in my own like debates and in, in college, like there were times where I was like, okay, like I understand that you're this other person debating me trying to get a point across, but I, I feel like they're like, I don't know, their, their response is maybe a little bit more visceral than like I, I would have imagined. But with that being said, like, I don't know. I just think that the overall way in which the message got delivered by the people who got selected to deliver it, um, just, I don't know, feels very out of touch uh, with with the current culture. What, what, are, what are your thoughts? When you look at who are the people primarily saying they feel silenced or they're worried about people in their sphere being silenced, like look at the signatories of the letter, JK Rowling's on there, right? And you think about what's been happening with her recently in the ways that she's feeling quote unquote silenced is because she's been getting backlash for being transphobic. And it's like, there's a difference between having difficult conversations that like may open you up to some vitriol or or cause debate like there's a difference between that and just like denying the human rights or the existence of an entire group of people no exactly i i agree 100 percent. it's like people like to think that you know debate and people constantly reference like freedom of speech and their right to that uh and i'm like yeah like like you have freedom of speech and you have the opportunity to debate your ideas openly, but there are some ideas that like, I don't think we should be giving a platform at all because it's like, not not everything is just an opinion. Like, I hate whenever people are like, this is just my opinion on your lifestyle or your way of living. It's like, no, like having, having an opinion 
you can't have an opinion about literally a person's identity. Like that is just literally hate and giving those kinds of ideas a platform, especially with such like prestigious, reputable uh, publications only opens the door to influence others to feel like vindicated in their idea or or validated rather um and 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 to you know for people to feel like those ideas are valid so i don't know i just i i i have i have a really big issue with with that all these people are are lamenting how they're living in fear and <laughs> like, I'm, like, I'm sorry. I, like I have to laugh because I keep coming back to the example of JK Rowling because I think she's probably one of the letters most prominent signatories that has come under such fire in the past month or so and I just keep coming back to her because it's like she's like oh I'm living in fear but it's like what you're already a billionaire based off of these books that you profited off of 10-20 years ago and it's not like you're putting out any new material that you're worried people are going to read. Like you're good. You've got, you, you secured the bag. Like you really don't have anything left to lose. Like if you're not currently publishing, meanwhile, trans people, especially black trans women are being murdered at extremely high rates right now. And it's like, it, you're not the one who should be living in fear. I'm sorry. Just based off of a few of the ones who I do recognize, I feel like a lot of them also, are, are individuals who have had the time to really establish themselves and their career and who, who are a lot older and perhaps like maybe for their time, I mean, I don't want to come across as, as ageist in any way, but perhaps like for their time might've had really progressive, uh, you know, theories and, and viewpoints. Like for example, Gloria Steinem is on there and it's like, yeah, you know, like she's very, pivotal figure in feminism but at the same time it's like you know we're, we're 50 years removed from when she kind of became a really big figure and I don't think that letter and, and the pe- the audience who wrote that letter really represent like where young people are today and like the kind of culture that we're seeking to cultivate when it comes to debating politics or, or debating like social issues. Oh, yeah. I mean, you look at, like, the signatories on that letter. You have someone like Barry Weiss, who, like, I'm sorry, is not iconic, even though she thinks she is. <laughs> um, there's Jesse Single, who's also, like, super transphobic and has been associated with those kinds of communities in the past. So you look at, like, who's signed on to the letter, and it's really not a lot of, like, the leaders of today or who people are tuning into to get their information about these issues from and then you look at like how the letter was actually marketed to a lot of the academics that did sign on some of them didn't even get to see like the full content of the letter or were told that it was going to look one way when it actually was completely different so then you had this case of people retracting their signatures from the letter because they were like this isn't what I thought it was going to be there was one like line in the letter that like I've kind of I've constantly gone back and forth as to like what I what I think about it. The way to defeat bad ideas is by exposure, argument, and persuasion, not by trying to silence or wish them away. So the reason I have I'm like very back and forth on that is because 
like I said, I don't think we need to give exposure to ideas that are literally just like transphobic or racist or homophobic or any kind of ist or phobic. But um, I was actually having a talk with one of my friends about this the other day, and it's this kind of gets into other territory. But we were talking about like Twitter and how Twitter lately um, has been putting up sort of disclaimers on, you know, mostly Donald Trump's tweets whenever they're just like not factual, um, which is often, if not most of the time. But we were getting into this conversation about whether that should be like applied, you know, to just like any tweets that do fall under any sort of like hateful or violent rhetoric. And I was like, yeah, you know, I think that I I don't know about taking them down. I think it's good to expose people for who they are. um, Because then we kind of, we get into this kind of like scary wonky territory where like people have these opinions and they're silent about them. And then it's like, what happens in the 2016 election, like that's when they like finally go out, vote, and like prop up somebody like Donald Trump when they were silent this entire time. And it's like, I kind of want to know like what we're up against sometimes. So it's like, I'd rather see those tweets stay up, but have disclaimers from Twitter saying that like these things are racist, sexist, whatever. Bringing that back to this argument, like outside of Twitter and like social media, I don't know how that can necessarily like be done and whatnot, but like, generally like like what would you think like what are your thoughts on that kind of thought I agree with you um I think it's you know the thing about social media is we know what's out there now but it's like I definitely think that when situations become harmful there is a duty to step in and remove them like one of the things that happened a couple weeks ago at least was um Congresswoman Ilhan Omar's father died of COVID and she had tweeted about it or there was a a news tweet about it and you look at all the replies and like I can't even like tell you what they said because they were just so like disgusting and honestly for like half an hour I was going through and reporting because I was like this like (laughs) that that was that was the like level of disgust that I had with so many of the things that were being said and like Twitter did take down like two of them but it was like again there is a line that gets crossed which I think you know there's a difference between spreading misinformation and like tweeting false poll numbers or whatever versus like making such like disgusting and harmful tweets. I feel like people often get really butthurt on the right and they're like Oh, like you liberals are snowflakes and you won't let me say my opinion and it's like well you do realize that like not you know again not to say that like any of their opinions are valid or anything but like if you are out here spewing your quote-unquote opinion and your beliefs then free speech gives everybody else the right to call you out on your bullshit so like you stop being the whiny crybaby and own like if you like own up to it like you should know that your words especially if they're hateful have consequences you really have no other problems in life like you really must not have a lot to complain about if you're like people won't let me be racist in peace like (laughs) find a hobby take up knitting I don't know 
Now, I wanted to kind of open up the convo a little wider to the topic of cancel culture, too. Because, um, and we're going to get into Goya in a little bit. But I don't know why I said it like a white person. <laughs> we're going to get into Goya in a little bit. But, um, <laughs> you know, obviously the letter also talks, was referencing cancel culture and, you know, the idea that be it present, like presently, if somebody does something, uh, you know, it might lead them to, you know, be fired or lose endorsements or whatnot. Or like if things in their past that are problematic resurface, that might cause them to lose their job or endorsement. What What is your view on cancel culture? Like, do you think that for the greater good of being of, you know, creating a more inclusive world, we should be canceling everybody? Or do you think there's room for more nuance? That's a hard question to answer. There's many things I struggle with with this idea is that one is like for me as someone who in the past couple months has done a lot more research um, about like abolitionist perspectives and things like that. I feel like the idea of like canceling someone or you know just like completely ruining or ending their lives and their livelihoods for problematic or harmful things they've said and done in the past is antithetical to an abolitionist framework and you know you have to have those avenues in place for like restorative um, or retributive justice um and those type of things. So on the one hand, in theory, that's where I am with it. In reality, though, I feel like it's so much more complicated because, like, again, a lot of these people that we're seeing being, like, quote unquote, canceled, like, yes, they might lose their jobs or people might not, like, buy into supporting their latest endeavor. But it's like at that point, they're already so established in their career that they have they have you know, a lot to lose. And most of the time, the stuff they do lose in proportion to what they have isn't, it doesn't add up. And then when you too think about the amount of people that were probably put in harm's way by certain people's actions, it's like, you have, you have so many things to factor in. That being said, I think for the most part, there are avenues for like retribution for a lot of these people if they would like to be accountable for their actions and if they embrace that process um you know to an extent uh it's just a lot of times we haven't really seen that happen unfortunately how about you no i and that's that's a really interesting perspective like coming from like an abolitionist framework something i definitely want to look into more but I've always kind of been unsure about how I feel about it because it's like, like you said, on the one hand, like most of these people who people even give enough of shit about to cancel tend to be really high profile people who like, even, even if they do get canceled, like quote unquote, honestly, like I'm sure they'll be able to find like new companies and uh and and people to work with who will like still hold their same problematic values and not really like care that much to make up for whatever profits they may have lost um and i you know i'm especially i'm especially very um 
Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I'm essentially very hard on individuals who make problem or doing problematic things like right now. Like I'm like, okay, JK Rowling, like you literally, like it's 2020, you're a grown ass woman. You have all of this money and the access to be able to be educating yourself constantly. Like you literally have zero excuse for these beliefs at this point. Um, But then there are other cases where I'm like, okay, like if these are like things that are resurfacing from maybe like 10 years ago, um, like, I don't know, you know, like in 10 years, like there's a lot of room for growth. And like, I know that when I was in middle school, like, you know, I definitely, it's not like I ever had any like outright, uh, you know, like macro aggressive problematic viewpoints, but I definitely, you know, growing up, uh, when you only know whatever bubble you're around, like there are things that you say because you don't know any better and things that you do because you don't know any better. Um, and like, I would hope that like 10 years from now, like I definitely would hold myself accountable, but I would hope that I like weren't, you know, completely canceled. Um, cause I think that you have to, you do have to have some kind of empathy for people. Um, especially when they are that young and when there isn't as much access to, literature and resources when perhaps they may have had these beliefs but you know again right now in 2020 like it's like there's no excuse for any I think any kind of uh any any viewpoint you know that is problematic um because there is so much access uh and and maybe that's coming from a privileged viewpoint like maybe I think that because I've had certain opportunities to like be around a, a, lot, a lot more literature than perhaps other people. Um, maybe other people wouldn't agree with what I'm saying, but generally speaking, I think between the internet and like where the conversation has gone nationally in the past couple of years, like I just don't think there's an excuse to like at this moment be be you know having any problematic views anymore. Yeah, I I definitely agree with the the idea of access and like you know, access to a lot of these concepts is in itself a privilege. Like I was lucky enough that when I went into university, for example, I did have the opportunity to learn about things like, you know, gender identity and expression. But a lot of people I started going to university with didn't. And in seminars, when people were trying to teach them about this stuff, there was like a lot of shaming. And it was like, well, you don't know where these people are coming from. You don't know what kind of education they had access to. Like, it kind of seems antithetical to like inviting them into this information if you're just going to shame them for not knowing any better at this stage in their lives. So yeah, I agree that like the issue of access is definitely a privilege, but like you said, there's so much information readily available now. And again, too, I think that goes for people who like, have said or done things. I mean, we all have, like, we're all cancelable in some way, I'm sure. Inherent in our, like, being human is the ability to grow. And it's like, if you make a mistake, you, like, shut up, you do the work, you try and be accountable for and undo the harms that you've caused, like, put your head down, move forward, and do better. And the problem, I think, that we see a lot of times is people that do get called out for this stuff are so defensive about it, like in J.K. Rowling's case, or, you know, with someone like Louis C.K., where he didn't even go away for that long. He hasn't shown any remorse for his actions. And it was like, 
it didn't even matter for him. If, if you're dismissive of people whose words, you know, you've heard, like, that's, that's when I think that's it. Like, I, we shouldn't be even worrying about you anymore. Like, good riddance. <laughs> Which, speaking of people and sadly things that we have to say adieu to, Yesterday, uh, the CEO of Goya Products, which, so Goya, for those who don't know, um, is a, especially in the Latinx community, is a really, really big company. I've literally grown up on it my entire life that has all kinds of seasoning products. Literally, I eat Goya every single day. Yes, uh, and so yesterday, their CEO was at a press conference at the White House and basically, in, in a few words, was saying how grateful he was to have President Trump in the White House and that he's doing tons of great stuff for the nation and for the community. And obviously Twitter has gone off. Uh, I've And Instagram and just all of the social media spheres that I'm on, like I'm seeing people, I literally, I literally saw a video um, a few hours ago of one of my like Spanish teachers from high school dumping Goya into her, into her trash bin. So, so yeah, so I've been seeing people just basically canceling it completely. And, you know, like, like I said, it's something that I've grown up with all my life. And so I'm going to part ways with it. It'll be hard, but I'll find my own way to do it. But I, I, for example, talked to my mom about it yesterday and she was like, no, there's no way. Like I've, I love Goya and I'm not parting ways with it. Like, I don't care what was said that has nothing to do with me and like with this cultural because it's cultural like I said it's a cultural product that like people grow up with so basically uh you know what like how do you because I'm sure in the past there have been companies and products you've had to part with because they were problematic how do you reconcile your your feelings and your like nostalgia that's attached to that company or product with your political views for a lot of us, we're trying to learn how to draw those lines, especially as we learn more about like the companies and products that we support, their political ties, and also just like capitalist exploitation. And for me, that was like a big thing too, was since like pretty much last year, I've stopped ordering things off of Amazon. And um, for me, that was big because obviously it has so much stuff and it's like, in a way, like you're low-key supporting some small businesses or creators, depending on who you're ordering from. And, you know, there's tons of, of things, like everything under the sun. If you want it, you can find it on Amazon. And when you're living in a place that doesn't have a lot of options readily available, it's it's great. But it was just like, I don't know. I just feel like I can't justify ordering off of it when it comes at the exploitation of so many people and when again Jeff Bezos is the one who's benefiting and I don't want to support him I can't he's just like trash and not iconic and I can't do it (laughs) that's that's one of the things that I've had to part ways with or I've been trying to educate other people on in the past year but it's hard because I feel like you know, Amazon culture has become so ingrained in, you know, getting that two-day shipping through Prime or, like, the amount of other companies that are owned by Amazon, like, Whole Foods. Like, I want my sourdough bread. There's issues there. And I think it's it's all about just thinking about what your values are 
and going in that direction because as much as it sucks like we do live in a capitalist based society and you really do in a lot of ways vote with your dollars so you can choose where you're putting that money and whether it's going to people in your community that you want to support or whether it's not I think that's also one of the really hard things for people when it comes to boycotting certain products or companies is like the financial access that some individuals might have. So, cause I think there is oftentimes a privilege in boycotting certain products or companies. Like a lot of the rhetoric I've seen around like the Goya boycott has been a lot of individuals saying like, I'm sorry, but like, it's just cheap and very easy and comfortable for me and my family. And like, I've seen that with tons of, obviously with Amazon too, like there's a certain amount of like cheapness and comfort that comes with it. Uh, so like, I, I don't know, like I'm in the position I think where like for the most part, I can probably boycott any company or product that I think is problematic. But um, I, I don't know if everybody is necessarily like in the place to do that. And, you know, I'm not going to shame them for not doing it because it's like, there, there are just so, like a majority of these corporations are going to have, especially large ones that are accessible everywhere, are going to have those issues. And there are so many people who like live in food deserts who maybe like the closest thing that they can get to might have tons of products that have, you know, CEOs that are super capitalist and, and are oppressing workers not paying them well so it's it's definitely you know like you said I think every individual has to evaluate like where their values are and also just like financially like what they can and can't cut out. I'm really glad that you brought up food deserts because that is something that is like that's that's the first thing that comes to mind with me in this situation is like you know it's all great for people like you and I to say okay maybe we can vote with our dollars elsewhere but for people where that's their only option what are they going to do? You know, like there is a privilege in in doing that. And I think that speaks to how tied up these systems are. And it's like, why is it that the only food available in these areas comes from like three different companies or is only these certain kinds of foods? Like, you know, these, these are all rooted in historical problems and we can't we can't just look at them in vacuums and say like, oh, that's okay. Or, or oh, we're going to like shame people for not doing this because we really don't know. So again, I think it's, it's just up to the individual and like balancing their values and what's important to them. I think though, if you have the opportunity to buy elsewhere, you should do it. Yeah, especially if you can do it locally. Like, there are so many, um, depending on where you live, especially if you perhaps live in, like, a, a metro area like, like we do, like, there are so many local alternatives that you can find to these really big corporate mega stores and chains. Uh, and yes, you know, oftentimes those local options might be a bit more expensive because the products have to be more expensive because there isn't, like, the the people like the manual labor um to really make the products cheap enough but if you can do it you know if, you, if you're financially in the position to do it and you want to put your dollars to good use do it locally um 
you know, we all go to bars and to clubs and spend absurd amounts of money. So maybe take some of that money and put it, you know, to some other local, local businesses. Long story short, capitalism is not that girl. And I think, you know, we all kind of realize that, but it's hard to tear down the whole system right now, especially if you're someone who's just trying to get from day to day with what you have. So just think about how you and the choices that you make kind of fit into that whole system and just work consciously from there. Yeah, we can cancel capitalism. One girl we can all agree on canceling. So Maya, obviously one of the things that I think we've all related to during quarantine is this constant longing for love and attention and you know just emotional and sexual longing so how has dating for you been like in these past wow four months that we've been locked inside oh my god it's it's been interesting I mean obviously there's been no physical intimacy in my life for quite some time um that being said it is like a good opportunity to get to know people before you actually decide to like bite the bullet and go on a date with them. Because I feel like so many times, especially if you're on the apps, you just swipe until you find someone attractive. You talk for like three seconds and then you're like, okay, let's get drinks. Like that, especially in DC, like that was such the culture of dating and then it was like you got drinks and then just never saw them again (laughs) but now now that everyone's in quarantine and it's like you don't have anything better to do and you probably don't want to see a person until it's safe to do so or in my case until the Canada U.S. border opens you just have the opportunity to talk to them and get to know them on like a deeper level so it's like by the time, if you reach the point where you've been talking long enough to, to, you know, go for like a few weeks or even a few months, by the time you actually do make that physical contact, I feel like it's pretty good. It's kind of like love is blind, but you know what the person looks like. That's the way I see it. Oh, that was really cute. Sadly, I don't know if I can relate <laughs> because for me, like, I, like, like you said, the culture of DC dating is just you talk for a little bit and then you immediately like meet up. Or on the other hand, it's like you talk so long and it's just like, okay, like where's this convo going? Like, what am I getting out of this? I'm busy and it just like fizzles out. With quarantine, I feel like I've had a lot of those, like the latter, where I'm just like, okay, like we're obviously talking and talking and talking a lot because we can't meet up in person, but like, I don't know, like, once we're, like, like once we're, like, three or four months into talking, I'm, like, that's such a deep level of knowing someone, almost to the point where, like, you're, like, like the point that you'd be at if you were maybe dating the person without any, like, physical contact, like, I just can't do it. <laughs> so, so, like, I, I literally have talk, been talking to a few guys, and after, like, two or three weeks, I'll be, like, hey, so, like, by the way, you know, it's been fun talking, but I don't want to, like, talk every single day, all day long, because who knows when we'll be able to see each other, and I'd rather, like, 
leave some stuff for like our first date. Like I want to have questions I can ask you when we meet up so that I don't know. It's not like I know everything about you already. In my case, there's like three people that I have talked to over the past four months. One of them was like, we met, we actually did meet before quarantine and it was great. And like, we got along super well and we talked all the time. And like literally the week that we were supposed to have our second date, the border closed. And so at first we were like, okay, maybe this won't last that long. Like, we'll just keep talking, see where it goes. But then it just got to the point where it was like, getting a little unsustainable and I think we were both just it was just hard on both of us but like we because we had been talking so much we grew such a deep like connection that we're still really good friends like we still talk every day and like we both have a really important place in each other's lives now and it's just like really weird how that happened it's kind of beautiful so I love that Um, the second guy did not last long. He came on way too strong and then got scared away when I said I liked doing stuff in the outdoors, doing stuff, meaning like outdoor activities, like, like hiking and, and (laughs) did you, did you say doing stuff or did you say doing and included? I I I included the examples, Jeffrey. I would understand if he got scared away. I just said, I like doing stuff outdoors. (laughs) (laughs) And um, the third guy, well, we'll see what happens. Um, so the first guy, he also came on a little too strong. He, like, DM'd me on Facebook. Oh. I wasn't even friends with him. I wasn't even friends with him. And he DM'd me on Facebook. And I was like, oh, God, like, what is going on here? And he was like, oh, I, I saw a picture of you on the Stonewall kickball because I was, like, on the kickball team. Uh like group uh I saw you in a photo with someone football and I was like oh you're cute so I wanted to message you and I was like okay and like you know I started talking to him and I was like this would be fun and who knows when quarantine will be like we were like at the very early stages like maybe like a week into quarantine so I was like whatever quarantine will be over like a week from now like we'll get to hang out but clearly that did not happen and he was and so I, I told him, it's, it's great getting good morning texts from you every single morning, <laughs> but uh, this is a lot, so, like, can you hit me up once things have settled down? He was like, okay, so who knows where, where that's at right now. Then I was talking to this one guy who I later found out from being at a protest and talking to somebody at a protest that that guy is dating someone. And was still dating somebody while we were talking, which I wasn't aware of. So I was like, oh, okay, that's awkward. You got to dead that. Like, the gays are always extremely messy. The third guy. Um, so I, like, so he, like, we met on Grinder as happens. And he was very adamant about meeting up in person, which I was like, uh, like, I don't want to do that. But then I went to, like, the protest I started going out to like brunch as well because the restaurants opened back up and I was like oh whatever like clearly I've I've I, I have zero regard for my life at this point so why not so we went on like a couple of like socially distant dates at first um and once I realized that like like he told me he had been in quarantine pretty much the entire time and had only gone outside to like see me I was like 
maybe we can move this to the bedroom. It happened a few times, but I don't know if we necessarily, like, very sweet guy, but uh, I don't know if I feel the same chaotic energy from him that I feed off. And I feel like I need a little bit of chaos in all the people that I that I date. So, so that's where that's at. Um, <laughs> and I recently think I may have found a potential person in a housing page because I made a, a post. I made a post about looking for housing in DC. And yeah, I think there's like a little something going on there. That that DC housing page is literally Tinder. Like it's pretty much the same thing. Truly, like for, for those who don't know, maybe it's like this in other cities. I haven't I haven't seen other cities, but it's like people will post like three really hot pictures of themselves and little like funny quirky Tinder bios essentially. And then people in the comments will dead ass be like, "Oh my god, you're beautiful! Like I don't have any housing to offer you, but you're so hot." It's it's funny actually when I first moved there I like had messaged a guy about a place and like we were talking for a bit but it didn't pan out and then when I actually moved there a couple months later we matched on Tinder and I was like oh no <laughs> did you guys talk no nope. I actually have a horror story from my first year of roommates uh so I was in a triple so it was three of us my two roommates they started dating before we even got to college. Like, they basically met through the Facebook group. We're like, wow, we really vibe because we both speak Spanish. Uh, like, it was, like, a, a Mexican guy and this white guy who was like, wow, I speak Spanish. Like, we really click and vibe super well. And they they got together and then moved in. Um, and two weeks, I kid you not, two weeks into the semester, they broke up. And then the rest of the semester... It was just, like, the most passive place you could possibly walk into. Like, they leave each other, uh, like, passive-aggressive quotes and song lyrics on our whiteboard and would bring guys back home. And, I mean, honestly, it was all kind of tea for me because they would both come to me with all of their problems. But it was hell for, for both of them. Speaking of dating horror stories, I've been watching a lot a lot a lot of dating around lately because it's like my favorite dating show ever did you have a chance to watch the latest season uh season one was fun but i definitely feel like they upped the chaos and the awkward moments in season two obviously my guy ben i honestly stand ben so much he is wow i just I was cringing the entire time that I was watching that episode. And I truly hope that person that was probably my my favorite. And I'm sure you also have some thoughts. Like I know some people were like, I couldn't even watch this episode because it was so awkward. But like, you know what? Honestly, I just want the best for him. Um, I really, really liked Diva. I loved her, but I'm sorry. Some of the people they sent her on the dates with were just awful like I really liked who she chose in the end but there was that one guy who was first of all he was a landlord like get a real job <laughs> and then he had like a fetish with bisexual women who would hook up with other women but like it, it was just the weirdest like power dynamic like he could be poly but they couldn't be poly and it was just like every everything about him I was just like grossed out I was like I can't do this this is yeah. horrible how did you find this person? 
Oh, yeah, no, that was literally atrocious. I think he's the most dislikable person ever to set foot on that on that show. Uh, the whole bi fetish thing. And then also he was like, speaking of not having a real job, he was like, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not working. Like, I'm just a landlord. But, like, you have to work. You can't just freeload off of me. Like, all of these other women. And I was like, whoa, like, somebody clearly has been hurt. Um, and then, oh, there was this really weird comment he made where he was like, all of my exes have either been homicidal or suicidal, and I would much rather have them be, I think he said homicidal or something, or I don't even know, but still, either way, problematic and tons of red flags everywhere. Oh my god, it was so bad. I, oh gosh, yeah, he was awful. I did really like, I really liked Okay, so the two favorite people that I had on that show of all of the people they featured and all of their dates, Heather, I really liked the guy she chose. Their salsa-ing was really cute. Oh my god, like, he, like, he, like, checked every box for me. He was, like, successful, like, involved in his community, like, at, like, their second date when they were dancing in the street and he brought the whole band and stuff. I was like, I love this. So I really liked him, and I also really liked the guy that Brandon chose. He was just so pure. Literally, I think I, like, shed a tear when they had their, like, cab ride home. And then he got out of the cab and, like, looked back at it. And I was like, no, I just want you two to love each other. Um, That episode was interesting for me as, like, a gay person to watch. Just because I was like, wow, this is all so relatable. Like, just immediate sexual tension because Brandon I feel like had sexual tension with every single person he went on that date with and I was like me um and it but yeah that was like such a little cute ride and uh, uh, I also I also really liked Demi a lot she's Dominican and I just always like seeing my Dominicans thriving speaking of diva I want her energy so badly like she just seems so secure of herself like just a boss ass bad bitch and also her style is everything like all of her jewelry her clothing everything like she the world nobody deserves her honestly no one (laughs) i i thought the same i was like she's too good for all of her dates honestly although I do like the one she picked like I thought together they were the cutest but I have to say I I did I was kind of hoping she would pull a Gurky because I really love Gurky like as an Indian woman you know she's like very contemporary in like her career and her education and a lot of her beliefs and things like that and I loved like at the end when she's like honestly none of these guys are worth my time like I would rather just live my best life by myself than pick any of them to go on a second date with I love that I thought uh the first episode with Justin that that choice was a little surprising to me because there was a girl who he literally like kissed and they like seemed to have a lot of really like good chemistry together and mm-hmm. his choice is very just like surprising to me were there any surprises to you yeah I think I think less so um this season than there were last season that one definitely like took me by surprise um and then I think um whose was it Ben's it wasn't as much of a surprise but I was just like it was either going to be the woman he chose or I 
I actually really liked a lot of the women he dated. I really liked the woman who, like, used to be a model. I thought she was going to be, like, the worst, and she turned out to be great. I was like, I kind of love you. Um, So I was like, maybe he would pick her, but... um, And then the rest of them I predicted. But the first season, like, really surprised me. Like, the first episode, I thought Luke was totally going to go for Betty because, like, honestly, I think they probably slept together <laughs> that night <laughs> in the cab together. Um, so that one was really surprising. And there are a couple of other surprises. But this one, I think, overall, it was pretty, like, easy to predict. I found it. Um, but I also found most of the people, for the most part. Like, this is we're excluding True and a couple other people from this. <laughs> for the most part, I found them a lot more likable than the first season. So would you ever go? Yeah. I think it would be so fun. How about you? Oh, 100%. Hell, like, I mean, I'd have to be the main person. I want to go on five dates. <laughs> I had my, like, date outfits, you know, and I would just repeat those. But usually I switched up the location. I think it'd be interesting to see what happens when I do it in the same location like they do in the show. Yeah, that's so true, honestly. Like, do a little experiment, see how it all goes. Actually, one of our good friends, Josh, uh, who will maybe someday be a a buddy on the pod, he um, was telling me that when he was on Tinder, he would have, like, basically, like, this script of questions so that he could very much easily compare all the people he was talking to. Uh, And I thought that was really interesting. That also doesn't surprise me about Josh one bit. One bit. That's so funny. But I mean, it's smart. Like, he knows what he wants and he's going after it. He's not wasting time like the rest of us are. Yeah, that's why he is now with Michael and we're all single. (laughs) I know. They just celebrated their one year anniversary cuties. Meanwhile, Jeffrey and I are trying to date during quarantine. I know. And that's like five years in gay time. We wish them the best, and we also wish you all the best. If you have any quarantine love stories you want to share with us, let us know. Obviously, a really great way to getting to know people and impress them is with music. And boy, do we have the playlist for you. Maya, what two songs do you want to add to the mix today? All right. So my first song is going to be a little throwback. It's the song Tragedy by the Bee Gees. I did a Bee Gees bracket earlier this week, and this was the undisputed winner for me because the song has everything. It has disco, synth, danceability, pain, very Gibbs falsetto. I think it's the perfect kind of like song of the times because it came out in 79 and that was like the tail end of disco and the genre is kind of falling out of favor giving its way to like a whole host of other more of that 80s sound in music and I think the song really lends itself well to that I think you know the Bee Gees were that girl that we knew they were during the late 1970s and I think this is a shiny example of why because it showed how their sound evolved with the times. 
I personally, I know you have a disco recommendation coming up, so I know you do too, but I really miss disco. I'm waiting for the disco renaissance to happen. Um, and I think that luckily we're starting to see a lot of elements of disco make themselves known in like today's pop and electronic music. Like you have artists like Jesse Ware, Daft Punk, Poolside, Toro Imoa, and uh, Dula Peep. She's a really great artist. And if you're on Spotify, Poolside has a weekly playlist called Daytime Disco, which has a bunch of modern disco song recommendations. And I'd highly recommend checking them out. My second song is the song, I'm gonna try and pronounce this. I'm sorry if I screwed up, but it's called Naterini and it's by Fatumada Diawara. And so Western music fans might recognize her through the work she's done with groups like Gorillaz and Disclosure. Um, but just like in her own right, she's a force to be reckoned with. So she's a folk singer from Mali, but she's currently based out of Paris. And she composes and writes a lot of her own material. And she mostly sings in Bambara, which is the national language of Mali. And her songs usually address themes surrounding like immigration, her culture, womanhood, and, and tying all those themes together. And she does put out some really beautiful music. This song in particular, the video for it is stunning and it also addresses the topic of immigration. And the original recording is great, but I specifically want to add the live colors performance to the playlist, which is thankfully available on Spotify. It's just a lot more raw and there's some amazing guitar work that she does on it. So that's my second song for the week. Uh, so yeah, so as Maya said, I also have a disco song. And as you were saying, we've been seeing this renaissance of disco in this past year. So it is Experience by Victoria Monet and Khalid. And so, oh, hold on. Sorry, I was frozen there. Okay. So it's Experience by Victoria Monet and Khalid. And, oh my God, sorry, hold on. Okay, it's Experience by Victoria Monet and Khalid. But is it Experience <laughs> by Victoria Monet? <laughs> so yeah, it's a very fun disco song with this horn saxophone loop towards the end. And Victoria Monet is somebody who, you know, I really enjoy a lot. And she's worked with tons of my favorite artists, um, particularly with Ariana Grande. And she has a new album, Jaguar, coming out on July 13th. So should be out by the time this episode is out. So I highly recommend that you guys go check that out. And funny enough, um, both her and Taylor Parks, who's also like a frequent Ariana collaborator, uh, has uh, have been doing like disco numbers as of late so I'm hoping that maybe like this will influence Miss Grande to drop a disco infused album hopefully uh, that's a moment that would be most pleasing to me in my career and the other song that I wanted to add I think honestly just captures my mood and everybody's mood for this entire year it came out today and it's called F 2020 so fuck 2020 and it's by this uh, group called Avenue Beat. Um, this is my first time hearing their music, but I was reading up on them. And, you know, they're this really young trio of very, like, progressive um, women. And a lot of their music is very much kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, takes on, like, what's happening in the news and in pop culture. Uh, honestly, I would throw it on at a house party if those can happen again. And we could laugh back on what happened uh, this year and the pandemic and like even like things that like comments that people have left about their music and about them as a group and as women 
uh, in, in the past year as their profile has also grown. Because, like, you know, for them, like, even though uh, shit's going on in the world, like, their profile has started growing in the past year or so um, with them being a new band. And as your profile grows, obviously you're subject to more hate from the internet. So that's kind of what the song is about. And I definitely suggest you guys check it out. So starting this week, we're also going to be including songs from listeners that they suggest and want to add to our playlist. So our first suggestion comes from our good friend, Marcus Ross, who you might have heard on the pod a couple weeks back. Take a listen. So the name of the song that I would like to talk about really quickly is called Reaching Too Much by Anderson Pack and Lala Hathaway. The first minute and a half, um, it's very like an R&B song meets the beach. Um, and, you know, you feel you feel good when you're listening to it. Um, and then after that minute and a half, it gets real like funk like like very 80s 70s um first band that comes to mind is um the gap band uh like bits and pieces of that and what i love about this song is that anderson he does this all the time he takes these bits from r&b hip-hop jazz funk and soul um and he just mixes them together so 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 well and it just feeds my soul to hear it um just because those are the genres of music that i live for above the the rest above the rest and my absolute favorite part of this song is actually the end because he lets lala hathaway do her thing and scat for the last about 30 seconds of the song which honestly, I think that's how every song should end. Just la la scatting, doing some beep, 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 whatever that she does. Um, but yeah, she's just iconic for that. And so to hear her scatting in a song like this, like she she turns it every single time. So Anderson, Lala, keep on doing what y'all doing. All right, thanks for another great episode. Thank you, Jeffrey, and we'll see you next week.